Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you happen to be visiting or new, um, my name is Norton, and I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver Church. Uh, last Sunday, we kicked off a new series, and I shared with you that during the season of Lent, this is the first season, uh, Sunday of Lent, uh, that we are going to be asking and wrestling with three different questions. Uh, the first that I mentioned is, why do we sin? And you don't even have to use the language of sin if you don't really like it. Uh, You can put it this way. Why does every single one of us consistently do things that end up hurting ourselves or hurting other people? And no matter how old we get, no matter how smart we get, no matter how wise we get, no matter how many lessons we learn in life, we still do things that hurt ourselves and hurt other people. Why? We spent a lot of time talking about that question last week. The, The second question is this. Where does sin come from? Right? Where does that impulse to do things that we know we're going to regret down the road, where does that come from? Did we learn it somewhere? Do we choose that? Did we inherit it? Are we just born that way? Here's the third question. Uh, what exactly is sin? If you had to define it, what is sin? And this is the question that's actually going to guide this entire series because defining this word is not as easy as you might think. And how you define it ends up shaping everything else you believe. Now, we're going to lean into a long and meandering discussion uh, that the Apostle Paul has about this idea in the book of Romans. And I need to offer you a warning first. Um, If you grew up in a Protestant church or an evangelical church, you probably heard a lot about the book of Romans. In fact, some of us even memorized verses. Raise your hand. Who memorized a verse from the book of Romans? All right, let's go around. James, you still know it? (laughs) Come on. Come on now. No, I'm joking. Um, You were about to say it, weren't you? You were just going to stand off. No, no, no. But we, some of us even memorized verses from this book. But Romans, we have to kind of step back and remember, it's not a book in the way we think about books. It's a letter, first and foremost. In fact, here's how it starts. Um, this letter is from Paul. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. So uh, when Paul writes this letter, he's actually in what is modern day Greece. We think he's probably in the city of Corinth and he's never been to Rome. He has some friends who are there. These friends help lead the church and the community of faith in Rome. And Paul is planning to see them. In fact, he's planning to travel to Spain. That's his goal because he knows there's no Christians in Spain. There's no churches there. And that excites him to go somewhere where he can talk to people who have never heard about Jesus, talk to them about Jesus. And so he's going to stop on his way to Spain in Rome along the way, partly to see the people he knows, but partly to raise money and support. Because his travels cost a lot of money, we know that, and at the end of this letter he talks about that. And so this is a letter he's sending ahead of time before he arrives there. It's like his introduction, him saying, I've heard so much about so many of you, and I can't wait to come visit you soon. Now, there is an underlying tension 
within this letter, and it's related to Jews and Gentiles. So if you remember, a Gentile is just somebody who is not Jewish. All the earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish. All the apostles, or all the disciples were Jewish. But then there were many people who were Gentiles. They grew up with a Greek or a Roman or a pagan background. They did not grow up with a Jewish background. And we know that there were some tensions between these two groups, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We know there were some tensions in the church in Rome between these two groups. And we know that Paul himself had the reputation of focusing mostly on Gentiles, that he would go and tell people who had no Jewish background about Jesus, and that there were some people even saying that some of the things that Paul believed about Jews and Gentiles was dangerous or was wrong. So Paul knows if he wants to raise some money and get some support by the church in Rome, then he probably needs ahead of time, before he gets there, to just clarify exactly what it is that he believes about this good news that he goes around preaching all the time. So he makes this big statement at the beginning of the letter. He says this, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Now here's the deal. Paul is a bit like an old school preacher. And so he knows that if he's going to clarify and explain exactly what he means about this good news so that he can help the people there understand what he believes, then he wants to start with the bad news first. And so he launches into this long sort of meandering, sometimes he gets off topic and he chases all these rabbit trails, this long discussion in this letter about sin, okay? And he actually offers a bunch of different ideas about sin. And so we're going to look at one key idea each week for the next six weeks or so, and they're going to build on one another. So here's how Paul starts. He says, God shows his anger or his wrath from heaven against all sinful, wicked people. Now, I know a statement like this is why some of us don't love reading the Bible anymore. God is angry, right? That's what Paul is kind of saying here. Um, But if you could just take your emotional response to this statement and set it aside for a second, let's just observe what Paul is saying about this thing called sin. Because a little bit later, he describes what or who sinful, wicked people are and what they look like. And he says this, Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. Worse yet, they encourage others to do these things too. So this is a pretty good list of all of the different ways that we regularly sin, right? It's not meant to be comprehensive. There are other occasions where Paul talks about other things. But at least here he's saying these are all the things that we all regularly do that tend to make God angry. Now, we'll come back to why in just a second, but look at what he says next. He says, You may think you can condemn 
such people. In other words, um, that list I gave, there might be something in you that sees that in other people, and you start pointing and thinking about other people, and he's also probably talking specifically to Jews right now, because the list he just gave was a common way to talk about Gentile pagans. Jews sort of felt good about themselves, and they would describe, these are all the things that pagans do, and these are what Gentiles do. But Paul says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and they should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. In other words, if you think you're all good, if you think you don't do this kind of stuff, especially if you're Jewish and you think that's just what Gentiles do, you're just as bad. You lie. You're greedy. You hate, at least in your heart. You gossip, right? You break your promises. You don't always show mercy to people in need. You do the same things. And by the way, he says, you have no excuse. And that is a really, really important line. Because probably what Paul is alluding to here is the Old Testament law. Remember, there was this law, these rules that were given, all of these instructions that were given by God to the Jewish people. And the instructions made it clear, do not lie, right? Do not gossip, obey your parents, love your neighbor, right? And Paul could say, it's been made, if you're Jewish, it has been made so explicit to you how to live and what to do and what to avoid, so you don't have any excuse. In fact, Paul says this, Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. So the law, and most of the time when Paul uses that word law, he's talking about the specific instructions, the Ten Commandments, all those things in the Old Testament. The law made it so explicit to you, Jewish people, how you should act, what you should do, what you should avoid, how you should live. In other words, the law defined sin for Israel. The law made it clear what is right and what is wrong, which means Sin is when you break the law. Sin is when you disobey the law. In fact, here is a key idea for Paul. Sin at its heart is disobedience. In fact, you could even say that this is the primary, dominant, nearly universal view of sin in the Old Testament. Sin is the choice we make whenever we disobey God and his commandments. So think about it for a second. What was Adam and Eve's sin? Right? Disobeying the specific command of God. Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from any other tree here, but don't eat from that one. And Adam and Eve disobey God. The very next story in Genesis is a story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous of his brother and he gets angry and God specifically says to him, don't let your anger turn into sin. You have a choice in front of you. You're tempted right now to do something not good. Don't make the wrong choice. But Cain makes the wrong choice. He disobeys God and he kills his brother. 
Uh, When Israel is saved and delivered from Egypt, they come into the wilderness, and the first thing that God does is he says, all right, I've got some rules for you to live by. And he gives them the ten commandments, and then the rest of the law. And then God says over and over and over while they're in the wilderness, obey these commandments. Obey these instructions. And if you do, there will be blessing, there will be life, there will be prosperity. Everything will go well for you when you settle in the land if you just obey what I've told you to do. But if you disobey, there will be consequences. And the rest of the story of Israel is described as the blessings they experience when they obey God and more often than not, the consequences they experience when they disobey. Now, let me tell you why this understanding of sin as disobedience, when we define it in this way, let me tell you why this can be really important. Because first, as I already mentioned, It explains so much of the Old Testament because the people who wrote all of the works, all the songs, all the prayers, all the histories, all the stories, all the messages that got compiled and edited and all put together and became what we now call the Old Testament, they primarily understood sin as disobedience. And you might not like that definition, you might not like that perspective, you might think it's wrong or it's too narrow, but it explains so much of the Old Testament because it's grounded in this idea that obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to consequences. It makes us helps make it helps us make sense of the way that Israel's story is told. Uh, second, this view of sin as disobedience tends to resonate with our whole legal system. How do you define a crime in our culture? It's when somebody breaks the law. And when they break the law, what happens? There are consequences. There is judgment. People are angry when people break the law. And we want punishment. We want justice. And we may not like it when Paul talks about God judging our sin or being angry or punishing sinners or letting sinners experience the consequences of their sin. But none of us wants to live in a culture that doesn't punish crime. None of us wants to live in a society that doesn't have rules or laws that we all agree to live by and that doesn't uphold justice when someone doesn't live by those rules, that doesn't judge people when they break those rules. Our entire legal system, as flawed as it is, is grounded in the idea that sin is disobedience. Uh, Third, this view of sin as disobedience also resonates with parents. Are there any parents in the room? How many of you as parents, let me just ask you if you're parents, especially of an older kid or a teenager, how many of you as parents uh, have set rules up in your house and when one of your kids has asked you, why do we have that rule? Have you ever said, because mommy and dad said so, right? And we all know as parents, that's a horrible answer, right? It's just not good at all. But we've also tried to explain some of the rules to our kids, and they don't always understand the rules. They don't have the same perspective as we do as parents. 
They think that watching 12 hours of TV a day is fine. They think that surfing on social media all day is fine. They think hitting their brother or sister is totally fine, right? That should not be against the rules. In fact, they don't even think that the parents should be the ones making up the rules. Which is why sometimes we as parents say, well, tough, those are the rules. And I know you don't like them, and I know you don't really understand them, and yet, if you disobey them, there will be consequences. That is a foundational understanding of sin as disobedience. Uh, fourth, if sin is disobedience, then it suggests that sin has something to do with rebellion against authority. See, the view that sin is disobedience does not really get at the why. It just defines sin as breaking a rule or breaking a law. So why do people break the rules? Particularly if breaking the rule doesn't really help you or benefit you. I told the story last week of a guy named Augustine. When he was a teenager, he stole some pears, and he said there was no good reason that he did it. Right? He wasn't poor. He wasn't hungry. They didn't taste very good. He wasn't mad at his neighbor. He wasn't trying to get revenge on anyone. He gained nothing from stealing these pears. But he knew it was wrong. And he knew it was against the law. It was against the rules. So why, he keeps asking, why did I do it? And it suggests that there's something inside of all of us that simply does not like to be told what to do then whenever rules or laws or restrictions are placed upon us that we didn't come up with ourselves or that we do not agree with, there is a spirit inside of us. Call it an independent spirit. Call it a rebellious spirit. But there's a spirit inside of all of us that tends towards breaking the rules. Now, we're going to have to unpack that more down the road. Where does that rebellious spirit come from? But... Even though this understanding of sin as uh, disobedience is important, it can also be problematic. And here's why. For starters, if it resonates well with parents, it does not resonate with kids. See, what do you do if you're a kid or a teenager and the rule that you've been given that you have to follow really is unfair? What if it doesn't make any sense to you? What if you think your parents actually are wrong on this one? What if you know that your parents are the weird ones and no one else's parents has these rules? Why do my parents have these rules? What if you don't trust your parents? What if you don't respect your parents? What if you don't think they actually have your best interest in mind? And this is really important because when it comes to our relationship with God, we are all the kid or the teenager who doesn't understand the rules all the time. And the last thing you want to hear if you're a kid from your parent is when you ask, why do I have to do that? The last thing you want to hear is because I told you so. Because I'm the parent and you're the kid. And it feels that way sometimes with God in the Bible, right? Just do this. Just follow the rule because I said it and I'm God and you are not. That doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. Second, if sin is disobedience, 
then you would think that knowing the law better, knowing the rules better, would help us not to sin. But that's not the case. In fact, this is what Paul begins to drive home in his letter. He's saying to Jewish people who are reading this, you guys know the rules. You've been taught the law and the commandments your entire life, and you're still disobeying them. Now, that does not mean that if you're Gentile, you're off the hook, right? Because I can imagine a Gentile reading this letter might raise their hand and be like, well, hey, Paul, I didn't grow up Jewish. I don't know the rules. I was never taught the Ten Commandments. So I should not be judged according to something I was never taught and that I did not know. I'm not really sinning because I didn't know the rules. But look at what Paul says. He says, when Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, or the word there just means they will face the consequences of their sin, even though they never had God's written law. Because... Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. See, Paul is saying, you don't actually need the written rules that Moses handed down and gave to all of the people of Israel to know the difference between right and wrong. That God actually in some way wrote all of those things on our hearts. Because we all know stealing is wrong. We know lying is wrong. We know adultery, cheating on a spouse that you made a commitment to. We know that's wrong. We know murder is wrong. We don't need a list of rules to tell us that. God gave all of us a conscience. There's something inside each of us. There's a reason that we all feel guilt when we do something wrong. It's like that inner compass or that moral conscience that is telling us we have sinned in some way. So remember, Paul is writing to both Jews and Gentiles. And so he's saying on one hand, Gentiles, you're not off the hook. Right? You actually know the difference between right and wrong too. But Jews, come on now. It was made so explicit to you over and over and over how you should live and what you should do. And you still keep disobeying. And so Paul finally says this. Here's the deal. All people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, and now he quotes a, a psalm out of the uh, book of Psalms, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. And then he kind of gives that famous verse that some of us have heard. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. He's saying there is some deeper power at work in all of us. Sin is not just disobeying the rules. If it was, then the Gentiles would be in the clear because they never really got the rules. But they're not. And they're just as sinful as anyone else. And if the more the rules were made explicit to us, as particularly us Jews, the better our behavior should have gotten, and yet it didn't get any better. 
And if sin is disobeying the rules, then you would think that the answer to all of that, the people who would be the most holy and the most righteous and the best and the people who sin the least would be the people who focus on keeping the rules the most. Like the Pharisees who knew the rules inside and out. And then they added a whole bunch of extra rules to make sure they followed the original rules. And then they added some more rules to help them ensure that they followed these rules that would help them make sure they followed the original rules. And Jesus shows up and he looks at him and he says, you guys are like the most wicked hypocrites of all. You're full of sin. And Paul himself was a Pharisee and he could say, I am one of the biggest. I am the chief of all sinners. So, what do we do with this idea that sin is disobedience? Well, let me wrap up by just giving you one statement, and I want to ask you or challenge you to hold two things in tension. And here it is. The idea that sin is disobedience is foundational and insufficient. It's foundational because it explains the importance of law and rules, right? Rules are important. Rules are necessary. Rules can help a society. They can help a group of people. They can help a family and a community work well. They can clarify for us the path to making good choices, the path to wisdom, the path of life. Rules can be really good, especially when we trust the rule giver. And when you understand sin as disobedience, it's really obvious that we are all sinners because rules make sin very measurable. If the rule is don't lie, if the rule is don't gossip, if the rule is be kind to other people, then it's pretty clear, as Paul said, we all fall short of keeping the rules. But sin is not just disobedience. I mean, it's a starting point It's a place to begin having a discussion about all this, but it's insufficient for explaining this power that seems to hold sway over our hearts and our lives and even our world. In fact, if we have only this view that sin is just breaking the rules, it's disobedience, it's rebellion against authority, that can actually be extremely damaging. So next week, uh, we'll build on this. Because Paul is going to introduce a second way of understanding sin. And it begins to explain not just what's going on in our actions, in our behavior, but what's actually going on in our hearts. So let me pray for us. God, as we said earlier, We pray that you would help us in this season of self-reflection and examination. Um, We're thankful that you're not truly angry at us, but that you want to forgive us. And that you sent your Son for all of us to offer us the forgiveness and the grace and the love that we so desperately need, the mercy that we need. And so God, as we examine ourselves during this season, if there is something that we're carrying that we should not be carrying, if there's something we're clinging to that we should not be clinging to, if there's something missing in our lives that you want to give us that would give us more life, I pray that you would help us to turn back to you. 
pray all this in your name. Amen.